Well, it's good to see you tonight. Ecclesiastes, after the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, the fifth chapter, we'll begin reading at verse 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Jerry will slip you a Bible so you can read with us. We're going to cover chapters 5 and 6, see if we go into chapter 7. So, as we travel through the Old Testament, while you're turning, there are just a couple things that I'd like to pass along to you. Um, and that is we're continuing registration for Vacation Bible School and uh, we're approaching around 50 so far. We just started and uh, looking forward to many, many more kids coming. And you can register at the uh, table there that's out there in the uh, coffee shop area. And you can take some of those registration forms and uh, give them to others that might want to register for Vacation Bible School. Also, there are these green cards that are here, very nicely done. And you might want to pass those out to anybody you might know that wants to go. Front side is in English, back side is in Spanish. And we mailed a whole bunch of these out around the city of Greeley and around Island Grove. So uh, we're praying that God will use it to, to let people know. And uh, that we're going to be in the park June 5th through the 7th, 9.30 to noon. And we're going to be talking about Jesus to the kids. We're going to be sharing Jesus and we're going to give them an opportunity to come to Jesus. So we're really looking forward to it. Every vacation Bible school, we have kids that make commitments to Christ. And, and that is a goal that is a prayer for our children's ministry, is to introduce people to Jesus, to come alongside you as parents, grandparents, and to uh, give them the gospel, to encourage them in the truth of God's word, and how kids need that. All of us need it, right? but particularly our kids, because there's so many things in the world that are taking them away. As I, I watch the youth go up every week, every Wednesday, so many kids that are coming, middle schoolers, high schoolers, um, and my heart just aches for them because the world is a lot different than when I was in high school um, 10 years ago. So uh, <laughs> a long time ago, you know, th there wasn't the polls that they have today. There wasn't you know, I, I talked to my kids. We didn't have microwaves even. We didn't, you know, we didn't have, um, we had cassette tapes. Uh, that was just right after eight tracks. And um, records, 45s, things like that. It, it, life was a lot simpler. Um, we didn't have the cell phones. We didn't have the internet until uh, Al Gore came along. Um, and then, <laughs> but... It was a little joke. That's the only political joke that you'll hear me say. So, um, But anyway, there's, there's so much that is tugging on them. And um, I believe we li live in a generation that there's more distractions and more darkness that pull them from the truth of God's word than ever before. Um, one of the things that's interesting is I got a call on the radio uh, yesterday at the end of the program, and it's the second call that I've gotten in the last couple weeks of a mom that's wanting to convince their son, daughter, um, that the world isn't flat. Um, and I'm thinking, that's ridiculous. Um, everybody knows that the world's round. The world was flat. That was something that people believed five, six, seven thousand years ago. The world's round, but apparently that is a growing trend of that deception of the world is flat Revelation chapter 7 talks about the angels in the four corners of, of the earth, so the world's flat. And it has a lot to do with uh, dimensions and all of this. I guess it's a growing trend that 
that young people are getting into, and you can take them outside and show them the moon and say, listen, the moon's round. What makes you think the earth is flat? But they'll tell you that the moon is flat. And we kind of chuckle at that. But that's how easily deceived people are getting today. So she wanted some verses, uh, the caller yesterday, on, you know, the earth. Um, the Bible does talk about the uh, circle of the earth. Job talks about that, Psalms. Luke talks about it in his gospel. We've gone over that. Um, we just went over Ecclesiastes, where Solomon's writing about the currents that go around the world. But here's the thing to remember, that if it was 100 years ago, just 100 years ago, if you would have told people that God didn't create the heavens and the earth, he didn't create the, what you see around you, it evolved. They would have laughed at you. And they would have said, absolutely no way. And how easily now that deception has come to where a lot of Christians believe that, well, it evolved and death came before Adam and there are other civilizations and things like that discounting the creation account and you see if you don't understand the beginning you're not going to understand the end and if you don't understand that when God said to Adam if you eat of that tree then death and sin is going to come you shall surely die Adam he didn't know what that meant because he'd never seen death and so we need to make sure that we're getting everyone that we have opportunity to speak to young or old child or adult the truth of God's word that the gospel is declared and we need to be committed to it and then share not only the word with them but to love them as well and so we're looking forward to ministering to the kids I'm kind of coming round about that it's so important it's imperative Calvary Chapel that we be praying for our kids and that we be praying for your children and that we be praying for these young ones that go up and for the young adults we need to pray for everyone but we live in a world where even as Paul said in the last days evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse and there are those who are going to depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving doctrines and having itchy ear heaping up teachers after themselves and even so much compromise in the church today about truth and and how we should live and and compromise and it, it concerns me, and I know it concerns you. So we want to really be ones that we want to share the truth of God's word, that it is inspired from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation, all of it. Every chapter, every verse, inspired, God breathed. And we can take it, and we know it's true. So be praying for Vacation Bible School. You can also register online, CalvaryChapelGreeley.com. And uh, so take one of these cards. And, and give them to a neighbor, give them to a family member that have kids. Um, take it to work and ask them if you can post it up, okay? And um, I'd like to really get rid of these. And uh, we're looking forward to when June comes along. There's also baby bottles that are out there. And so grab one of those baby bottles for the Pregnancy Center. Again, a very important ministry here in Greeley as um, there are those who are coming in, young ladies, even men that come in that they minister to, um, that may be abortion-minded, and they have the opportunity to hear that there's other options besides aborting your baby. And lives are being saved, and babies are being saved. So we want to continue to pray for that ministry, support them as the Lord leaves, take a baby bottle, fill it up with change, put a check in there, whatever it is, and 100% of it goes to the pregnancy center, 
and continue to pray for them. We really live in the days where we need ministries like the Pregnancy Resource Center um, that don't get any federal funds. They don't get any government funds. It's all by donations of Christians who are desiring to have a ministry that we can give the truth to the young ladies that are coming in um, and are abortion-minded to tell them, choose life. Choose life. And we believe in the sanctity of life. And I don't know if you realize, but ever since the 70s, Woe versus Wade, in that decision, 60 million children have been aborted. That's a whole generation. And we talk in the Old Testament about how they would sacrifice on the arms of Moloch and, and Baal there in Jerusalem and, and how awful that sin was. This is the sin of our nation. And what concerns me as well is the value of life. You know, I always thought that life, you know, we respected life in our nation. But I, I get concerned as I see the trend that we're going and now passing laws that, you know, assisted suicide and all this and older people, that their lives aren't valuable so we can just put them to death. And, and it concerns me that he's the one that holds every breath that we take in his hands, right? And that we are to be ones that we are to value life. And, and, and I think about this because this week is police week. And so I want to remind you that, um, you know, all around the country there's been um, memorial, peace officer memorial ceremonies going on, remembering the, those uh, peace officers that were lost in the line of duty in 2016. And, um, you know, they're under tremendous pressure and we want to pray for them. Romans chapter 13 says that they are ministers of God for good, for our own good. And I've been a part of our own Peace Officer Memorial Service. I helped start it 15 years ago. And I set it up and been a part of it for the last 15 years as a chaplain for the Sheriff's Office. And tomorrow, whether they have it or not, I don't know. It depends what their plans are because of the weather. They, they have it at the... Uh, well County Fallen Officers Memorial in Bittersweet, and obviously it's going to be rainy and quite wet tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. But it is important for us to take a moment and to be able to remember those who, you know, fell in the line of duty, that came to their end of watch, and, um, and to, you know, be praying for their families. Uh, but I remember being down at, nine, you know, New York, Ground Zero, 9-11, there during the day working, and, and I remember that um, it was such an intense time and such a hurtful time. I believe it was 167 peace officers that lost their lives at 9-11 in New York uh, City police officers. And I believe also, if I remember, it was 370-some firefighters that lost their lives as well. So it was just... It was just a really intense time, and every day there was memorial services going on, and, and firefighters from all over the country, all over the world, pouring into New York in dress uniform, and memorial services going on all the time. But I remember being down at Ground Zero, and I remember that a whistle would blow when they found a body part, and you know the ambulance would back up, and everybody would be at attention. And just that respect for life. And, and we're losing it. And, and just the grief and the sorrow of all that. So we choose life. And 
people are in darkness and there's an atmosphere in our country that should cause us to weep. And it breaks our hearts. And so we need to be praying and praying for our first responders, praying for these young people that are going to be graduating. You know, we've had some graduate from the university. UNC's had their graduation. And, and now the high schools are going to be graduating. Be encouraging them that God has the very best for you and he loves you. And as you start a new chapter in life, graduate, whether it's in high school or whether you're graduating college, that look to the Lord because he will not fail you. And he will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. And we need to encourage our young people in that. Because sometimes they can look at the world and it's so confusing and overwhelming like it is for any of us. And the Lord is the one that brings the comfort that we need to bring our hearts to that place of, Lord, you know what? You're my hope. And that's what I pray that we move more towards in our lives and in our walk with the Lord. Lord, you are everything that I need. And even as Ecclesiastes here, as we go through Ecclesiastes, here is a man who had everything, Solomon. He had all the wealth you can have. He had a thousand wives and concubines. He had the power. He had the prestige, the popularity. He had building projects. He had horses all over the country to where some scholars believe he had 40,000 horses. He had so much gold and silver. He had parties that would make Hollywood blush. He seemed to have it all, great wisdom and knowledge. And he looked at life and he said, it's vanity. It's all vanity. Because a life apart from Christ is going to leave you cynical and down and discouraged and depressed. Not because I say so, because the Bible is teaching this to us as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. So, Father, we ask that you would just bless this study. And, Lord, even as we, we look at the things around us, and, Lord, we can weep for our nation. We weep at the attitude of what we see happening, of rejoicing in that which is a lie and celebrating that which is deceptive and dark and accepting that which is a lie. And Lord, that life is precious and you are the creator of life and the author of life. And we have looked at that and we have diminished it in so many ways. And there's a push to continue to diminish it. That you are the one that has numbered our days. And you are the one that holds every breath that we take in your hands. And you're the one that will perfect that which concerns us. So Father, may we trust in you and look to you for everything. I pray for these young people that are graduating from high school and from the universities and colleges, from, Lord, that you would help them to understand that you have a wonderful future. You are their hope and future. And as they seek you, you will speak to them. You will work through their lives. And even as our prayer is, as Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, that you want to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I pray for our peace officers, Lord, as this week we remember those who fell in the line of duty. We pray for those who wear the badge and the shield and 
local and state and national peace officers that hold the line that you call ministers for good that protect our homes and our communities and I pray for those who have gone through loss that have lost those in the ultimate sacrifice for their communities and Lord I even know some personally that have gone through that and Lord we thank you for those who work in that way our first responders we remember those who are in the military they're fighting for and defending our freedoms Lord, that we would remember them as Memorial Weekend is coming up in just a week and a half. And so, Father, tonight, I pray that your word would touch our hearts. And, Lord, that you would bless this study, knowing that this is you speaking to us. There's something for us to take home tonight. And that we would be attentive in the things that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, with Solomon having everything, that the Bible says that Solomon, his heart was not perfect towards the Lord like his father David. And when you go through First and Second Kings of the Old Testament, when you go through Second Chronicles, when you read about those kings of Judah, they were all compared to David, weren't they? And as you read that, initially as you study the Bible, you think, you know, Lord, why did you compare those kings to David? Because David certainly that he was a man that failed in many ways. He sinned greatly. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And then he tried to hide it for several months. David was one that he was, you know, had a problem with lying at times. He, we see that he was one that would be uh, arrogant and prideful, so much so that he counted the people. And a plague ended up coming down upon the nation because of David's sin. So David, as you look at his life, it wasn't that he was perfect in his actions, not at all. David wasn't compared, you know, or the other kings to David because David was a great warrior and killed giants, or he was a great administrator. But because it was David that had a heart after God. And that's why they were compared to David. And as we see David's life, David was one that truly repented. He was one that truly cried out to the Lord. We see that in the Psalms. He did have a heart after God, and he never bowed the knee to an idol. And his son Solomon would fail in that, even though he was the wisest man on the face of the earth at this time, had great knowledge, had great success. He was the one that built the temple, the house of God, Yet it would be over time he eventually would bow the knee to idols. He would burn incense to, to false gods. He would introduce idol worship back into the nation once again. And Solomon ended up failing in so many ways. And I think that the reason that Solomon did is maybe a hint is given to us. I'll, I'll read it to you. After he built the temple in First Kings chapter 9, it says that it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of Solomon's desire which he wanted to do. I think there's a little hint in there. He took seven years to build the temple. It was a magnificent building overlaid with gold. He took another 13 years to build his own house. It's interesting, he almost took twice as long to build his house as he did the temple. But he had tens of thousands of workers 
that were building the temple for seven years. So after 20 years, as First Chronicles tells us, or Second Chronicles, excuse me, talking about Solomon at this point after he built the temple, when he had reigned for 20 years, he had done all that he desired. I think what happened was kind of like he said, okay, I built the, the house of the Lord. Uh, I've done that. Now what is it that I'm going to do? And he forgot the Lord. And so he begins building projects all over the nation. He's, you know, gathering gold and horses and wives and all of this. And now he comes to this point. It's later on in his life that he's writing Ecclesiastes, I believe. And he's saying that, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Life is routine. What difference does it make? If you labor, what good is it? You know, if you have knowledge and, and wisdom, uh, it, it brings me much sorrow and pain to do that. Uh, I might as well party, but party doesn't bring any satisfaction. He had parties where he had exotic animals. He had daily provision to where he could have a feast for 14,000 people every single day. Talk about a big party. He was one that wore golden sandals. He had anything that he desired and so he goes through this book and he's saying it leaves me empty. There's no purpose. Life is mundane. You know, what's the purpose of your labor? You're just going to leave it to somebody else and who knows what they're going to do with it. Who cares if you're popular? They're going to forget about you. You know, who cares uh, if you have, you know, all these things. He's not satisfied. He's negative. He's cynical. He, he is very depressed and he's very down. Because he's trying to find all of that apart from the Lord. And he, as he goes through this book, he starts to bring us some conclusions here. And it's when he gets his eyes on the Lord. And when he gets his eyes on the Lord, he has some positive notes. But here, Solomon, as we talk in chapter 5, he, he's going to start out. He talks about making vows and promises. We learn from that. But then he's going to talk about the vanity of being popular and being wealthy and all of this. And he's down and negative, And that downer attitude just continues as you go into chapter 6. But let's begin in chapter 5 as he writes, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they do, that they do evil. In verse 2, do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth, and therefore let your words be few, and a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. And when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And do not let your mouth cause <coughs> your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? So here he's talking about rash promises. He's talking about vows. Don't speak rashly when you go into the house of God. Don't speak foolishly. You need to speak in wisdom. Don't come with all kinds of vows and promises that you're not going to keep. And I think that Solomon, as he's being cynical here, perhaps he would know that those who would go to the house of God and they would perhaps uh, play games, they would make these vows, they were trying to be spiritual. We know that Jesus, that in the gospel narratives, would rebuke the religious leaders for doing that. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say to, to us, and to the people that don't give oaths, don't give these vows, what you are to do is let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
And what Jesus is saying is that don't give all these vows and these promises and these oaths that you can't keep. And the religious leaders would do that. They played games with their oaths and their, and their vows and all this. Well, you swear uh, on the temple, uh, but not necessarily to God. And they would go around their house and they would corbin everything, corbin this and corbin that. And that way they didn't have to share anything because it's corbin, which means dedicated to God. So sorry, mom and dad, I'd like to give you some things to help you, but I can't because it's corbin. So Jesus rebukes them on that. And one of the things as we go through this, Solomon is saying something that we can learn from, that we are to be ones, that, that we don't just want to play church, we don't want to just have the spiritual talk, but we want to be ones that we are men and women of our word. And a fool's going to speak many words. And the Hebrews, it's interesting in verse 3, that for a dream comes through much activity that Solomon writes here. And you're wondering, what is Solomon saying there? But it is believed that some scholarship, that in that time, in that culture, that if you conducted yourself or spoke improperly before God and making vows or promises, then you were going to have nightmares. Now, I don't know about that, but I do know this. Then we make rash vows and promises and oaths to God that we have no intention of keeping, or we make them out of our flesh, then we can't keep it. And I know this, that when that happens, we won't have rest. And you and I, as Christians, I believe that the Lord desires for us to walk wisely, and Jesus gave us something very practical for us to live by. He said, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. You don't need any more than that. In other words, be a man or woman of your word. And none of us, we keep this perfectly. We, we have all in our lives failed at this in one point, but we need to learn that we need to be saying yes and no. Sometimes Christians will say, well, I'll be there if it's God's will. And I'm sitting there going, what do you mean if it's God's will? And it's an excuse for them to say, well, it wasn't God's will. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you commit to something, then commit to it. But don't be making rash vows and oaths that you can't keep or are too difficult for you to keep. And so Solomon's writing about these things. And it doesn't mean that we won't over, ever take an oath or make a vow. Because if you go to the court of law, what do you do? Take an oath. There are those that are, you know, um, sworn into office. What do they do? They take an oath, don't they? When we do a wedding ceremony, and I've done many wedding ceremonies, the most important part of that wedding ceremony is the exchange of vows. But what is being told to us in the scriptures is be careful that you don't make those vows and those promises and those oaths that you're not able to fulfill. And sometimes we can do that. Lord, if you just help me to pay the bills, I promise I'm going to give half my check to you next month. Or, Lord, if you work in this situation, I, I promise I promise that I'll go to church, you know, three times a week for the next year. And we mean well, and we want to do that, but there's no way that we're going to be able to keep it, and then we get down and discouraged and all that. So be a man or a woman of your word, and it doesn't please God to go back and say, well, you know what, um, you know, it's an error is what Solomon is saying. Um, and we need to be ones 
that say yes and no, to continue forward in the things that we say. And I think verse 7 really sums it up. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there's also vanity, but fear God. In other words, let's not walk in the strength of our words and making rash oaths and promises and trying to be spiritual and all of this. Let's walk in the strength of the fear of the Lord. Just walk in the fear of the Lord. And Lord, whatever you have for me, and Lord, whatever you desire for me to do, give me the strength to do it. And help me be committed to, you know, do what I've committed to do. And Lord, help me to, to live for you and, and to walk in that. And the strength of God's word is given to us and the fear of God in our lives. But it's not in many words that are given. So he's being down in all that. He says it's vanity, but fear God, which is a good word to us. In verse 8, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion uh, of justice and righteousness in a uh, province, do not marvel at the matter. For high officials watches over high official and higher officials over them. And what Solomon is saying is that the idea that corruption will filter down and each you know, level of, you know, society or sometimes even uh, of government. Um, we all have somebody, a lot of us, in authority over us. But we have the one who's ultimately the authority over us, and that is the one judge of the whole earth, and that is our Lord. So here he's beginning to be down on, you know, uh, those who, uh, you know, are oppressed and, and those who... Um, you know, uh, perversion of justice and righteousness. That's speaking of the priests and all of this and corruption filtering down. But verse 9, moreover, the prophet of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. So he ties this in. E either you're rich or poor, common or king, whether you're under somebody or over somebody, we all feed from the same land. Don't think that you're extra special and all of us will be accountable to God who is a respecter of no man. All of us will be accountable to God and how we treated others and how we served others. And, and we see that Paul writes a whole lot about that in the prison epistles in Ephesians and Colossians about being servants and masters and, and all of this and those in authority over us. And um, it's, it's good for us to take heed to that. And he also writes about being subject to governing authorities. And we are to be subject to governing authorities unless it directly violates, you know, the command of God and the word of God or it's immoral. But we need to be ones that we do what is right. And then in verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? In verse 12, the sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So if your goal is just to have more, it, it will never be enough, and, and you won't be satisfied. And we've talked about this even in our Luke study recently in chapter 16, that wealth is not going to bring you contentment. Some people think that if I just become wealthy or have more money, then I won't have any problems. That's not true. It isn't that you won't have any problems. You're just going to have different problems. And all of us, we see in our society those who have the popularity and the wealth and the prominence, and, and, you know, and yet they can be very, very miserable and discontent. 
So the way to be content is to allow the Lord to be the one who truly is our satisfaction and fulfillment in life, who's given us real purpose, whether we have a lot or we have little. And even as we went over that parable, the unjust you know, steward, that Jesus said, listen, you cannot serve both mammon and God. He did not say that you cannot have both money, that's mammon, and God, because God can bless us with, with money. But he says you cannot serve both. You cannot serve both because you'll love one and hate the other is what's going to happen. And so we want to make sure that whether we have a lot, God has blessed us, or whether we have little, that the Lord desires to bring contentment to us. And in our culture and in our society, I think very few people are content. Because all around us, the voices are yelling at us that you need more and just a little bit more. And you need to have this to be happy. And Madison Avenue hits us with all of that, doesn't it? And even in the church, it can be that way. I have to be careful because I can think, well, Lord, if I just had a bigger building, if I just had, you know, uh, more of this or, or, you know, more money came in or whatever it may be. And over the years, the Lord has taught me and he's still teaching me that if you can't love 10 people, you're not going to love 1,000 people. If you can't serve those 10 people and feed them faithfully the word of God, you're not going to be faithful in serving and feeding the word of God to a 1,000 people. So we can think, if I just had more, then I'll be happy. If I just had more, then I'll be content. And it never is enough. We need to be thankful for what the Lord has given to us. I think about J.D. Rockefeller. You know, he became the first billionaire there ever was. He was the first billionaire. That was unheard of. And he was in his 50s. He was about my age. And he was sick. And he was losing weight. And he was depressed. And he was in bed. And finally, as he was always worrying about his money, worrying about his business, stressed over all that, he, he, he said, I'm going to start giving it away. He lived to be 98 years old, I believe. He lived to be in his 90s, I know. But he was one that... He had a different perspective of things. So in verse 12, the sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. You know, the, the thing about if you do have a lot of money, um, what can happen is some people want it. Or you have to hire a bunch of people to manage it. So again, it doesn't mean that you don't have any problems. It just means that, you know, you're going to have more responsibilities and you're going to have more pressures on you and it's not always easy. I pray for all of us that are here that we would be good stewards of whatever God has given to us. That whether we think that we have little or much, that first of all, keep in mind that we have the riches of Christ. That we are tremendously blessed, aren't we? because we have an inheritance in Christ that is eternal. And the second of all, that what we do for Christ, that's what's going to last. And whatever he's given to us, to use it for his glory, to store up our treasures in heaven, to invest in the kingdom of God. And I think we need to invest more than ever. And to know that true godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, as we just serve him and look to him and as we know him, 
and as we're good stewards of what he's given to us, that's going to bring contentment and great joy in our lives. And that's the priority. Whatever financial situation you're in, listen, don't be a slave to the money. Don't let the money manage you. You manage the money. That's the key. And as you manage the money, whatever you have, I'm going to give to you, Lord. And it may not be a whole lot, but in your eyes it is. It's a blessing because remember that he told his disciples, and this is right before he went to the cross, that widow that put two mites in the box. She gave all that she had, and she was given to the Lord. And that was right after that he was shown a coin, should you pay taxes? And he said, render the things that belong to Caesar to Caesar and render the things that belong to God to God. So we give to him of our finances, of our time, of our resources, of our, you know, talents and gifts that he's given to us. And as you do, that's where the joy really begins to come into your heart. But here in verse 13, there's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for uh, their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. But he begets a son, and there's nothing in his hand. So speaking from going to riches to rags and losing everything, and we've heard of people, maybe you know somebody has gone through that. All of a sudden through investments, they got wealthy very quickly, and then all of a sudden they lost it. It all fell apart or whatever the case may be. And he's talking about um, that that can happen. It, it seems like it happens, and, and it's carried away in verse 16. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, and so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Isn't it interesting? He works so hard to get gain, is what Solomon is saying. And remember, he's being cynical here, but then it just leaves him empty. He's sorrow and sickness and anger and darkness. And the reason is, he didn't become rich towards God and you didn't invest in the kingdom and to remind all of us once again that as you invest in the kingdom be rich towards the Lord store up your treasures in heaven have an eternal perspective that everything that you have it really belongs to the Lord don't just think well 10% belongs to you Lord and everything else belongs to me it all belongs to him and I know that you got bills to pay and, and you know, homes to, to upkeep and cars to, to get fixed and doesn't mean we can't buy anything or do anything. But it's like, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do with my resources and my time and my talents? And what have you given to me in life? I want you to be the priority over all of it. And that's the key, whatever we do in life. You're the Lord over all of it. And one of the things that we found here, because, you know, and I'm still learning this, that, that Lord, we can never, never outgive God here at the church. And, and I love to invest in the kingdom. I love to invest in, in whatever we can as the Lord leads and stuff. And it, sometimes I think, huh, we, you know, we're not going to have any money left if we keep giving away the, all the Bibles and, and, and giving. But we're finding out that God just keeps giving and he keeps giving and I look at the accounts and I think, wow, Lord, you are providing. You can't outgive God. And what you do for Christ, listen, and what we do for Christ as a church, that's what's going to last. And so we want to invest in eternity. 
because we know that as we do, we're going to store up our treasures in heaven. And then in verse 18, here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in this labor, this is a gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy and with the joy of his heart. So a little bit of an upbeat here as he says, remember that, you know, as we have that heritage that we live, enjoy your labor, enjoy what God has given to you. Again, it's speaking of being content and being thankful for what God has given to you. And listen, the greatest thing that we can do is leave that godly heritage to those who are children and family, loved ones and friends. That's the important thing. That we are to be ones that, that people will look at us and say, oh, you're such, you know, such a blessing to me. Not because of how popular we are or just because how much wealth we have or whatever. You're a blessing to me because you tell me about the Lord. And you've served me and you care for me. And you've loved me and you've given me hope and you've been patient with me. And that has had an impact on me to really invest in somebody, whoever it may be, your children, your friends, relatives, co-workers, to invest in them in the things of the Lord. That's what we want to leave. And when God is done with me here at Calvary Chapel, I want to leave a godly heritage to where I want it to be where people have been blessed and the church is strong spiritually. It doesn't matter how big the building is or how many services we're having, but did we honor the Lord? Did I honor the Lord in my ministry and everything that I did? Because that's what I want to do. And that's what I ask for God's help that Lord, to leave that godly heritage and legacy for if you tarry for the days ahead and the years ahead. But as we move into chapter 6, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. He continues speaking about riches, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself for all his desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it's an evil affliction. As he's negative, he speaks of someone who is wealthy and does not enjoy the fruit of his labor, and he dies and leaves it for a stranger. He's wondering, you know, that this is life under the sun. He's not speaking of a life that's dedicated to the sun. That is the son of God. So he's down. He says it's an evil affliction. It's vanity. Verse 3, If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name's covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man." Even if he lives a thousand years twice but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. He's really down here. This is a sad perspective. You can have many children and they don't care for you. There's no love in the home. They can't wait for you to die so they can get your money. They don't even bury you. They just want the goods. 
Solomon said it's better to be stillborn than to experience the pain and hurt of going through life like that. Listen, I know that there are some that go here that have experienced the pain and hurt of life, feel like they've been abandoned by their family, maybe by their parents, by friends. You feel like no one cares for you. You've gone through that hurt, but I want you to know that God loves you and he sees you, and he has a purpose for you in life. And he wants to use you, and he hasn't abandoned you, and he never will. And all the labor of a man, verse 7, is for his mouth, and yet his soul is not satisfied. And what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better in the sight of his eyes than the wandering of desire. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind there in 7, verses 7 through 9. No satisfaction in fulfilling the flesh. Remember Deuteronomy? Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy in the temptation, wilderness temptation of Satan. A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And again, to remind you that uh, true satisfaction is going to come as we feed upon the word of God. As Jesus fed the 5,000, they're looking for him again. They said, where were you? And Jesus said, you're only coming to me because you're hungry again. You got fed yesterday, and now you're hungry. That's all you're looking for. You need to come and eat of the bread that comes from heaven. Come eat of me and drink of me, because I'm the bread of life that came from heaven. And whoever eats and drinks of me shall never hunger and thirst again. And the people are scratching their heads and are going, man, this is a hard saying. What are you talking about? Are you talking weirdness here? What are you talking about? And they begin to dismiss and leave and to the crowds diminish from that point because Jesus was talking about intimacy and closeness and knowing him and fellowshipping with me. You need to know me. You need to come and believe in me because I'm the bread of life and I'm the living water. So can I ask us all a question? And I've asked this many times before. Tonight as you come into this place, are you hungry? And are you thirsty? And discontent? And bummed out? And wondering what's the purpose of life? Jesus says, come and eat of me. Come drink of me. The living waters. Because just as he told that woman at the well, if you drink of this water here, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink of the water that I have, you'll never thirst again. You'll be satisfied in your soul and in your heart. And he goes on and he says in Jerusalem later on, a few chapters later in chapter 7 of John, that he says that if any of you thirst, come to me and drink, and out of your belly will flow torrents of living water. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Lord wants to come and just fulfill you and satisfy as you come and eat and drink of him, of the living bread, the living water, the bread of life, to believe in him and to know him and have closeness with him. And then as we finish, verse 10, whatever one is and has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that have increased vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, who can I tell a man what will happen after him? 
under the sun. He's saying, what good is it to live all through life? It passes by. It's all vain. What kind of hope can I give to anybody? We have a message of hope, don't we, folks? We have a message of hope, the only message of hope that there is, that Jesus Christ came, he lived, but then he died for you. That you might have relationship with him, forgiveness of sin, and belong to a kingdom that's going to last forever. We have the message of hope, and we can say, you know what? This world is vanity. Do we understand that more? Really, when you look at the world, it's vanity. But we as Christians are so blessed because we have that which is life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Tonight, as we go to prayer now, maybe you're here and maybe you've just, you know, kind of like, what's the purpose of this? And I'm so dissatisfied. I'm so frustrated. I feel unfulfilled. What am I supposed to do? I'm so confused. Whatever the case may be, let's go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. And he says, come to me. He always says, come. He never says, get away. I don't like your attitude. (laughs) Others might say, get away, but he doesn't say, get away. He says, come to me, (laughs) all right? Because he wants to refresh us and renew us. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these words. And Ecclesiastes, as we read it, we, we see it cynical, negative, and but Lord, we don't have to live life that way. That's what we're being told. We can live life with true joy and true purpose. So Lord, I pray that um, all of us here, maybe some of us come in and we're feeling just dry and we're feeling, oh Lord, so hopeless or helpless. We wonder what is the purpose of things, frustrated. Lord, I know for me, I can feel frustrated just because I I know of, of my own inadequacies. And Lord, I thank you for your forgiveness, your mercy. But Lord, that we would know that you're our joy and that you're our purpose and hope in life. That we're not going to find it in our own efforts and energy, good intentions that we might have. We work so hard. We plan and we plot and we strive. But Lord, we fall short. Because we're not allowing you to work. Father, I just pray that tonight in our own emptiness of heart and frustration that we would go to you. That you would fill your children with your Holy Spirit. That as we come and just know you and cry out to you and stand on your promises, that you have given us such wealth and such blessing beyond measure. Lord, to help us keep our eyes and our hearts focused on you. One thing that we do want to be, like David, is a heart after you. To be content in what you've given to us. 
to be thankful, to be praising you, to be surrendered to you. Tonight when we go to bed, to say thank you, Lord, you got me through the day. Lord, I thank you for your, your gift of love, provision. And as hard as today was or as difficult or confusing, that I have you, Lord, and you'll never, never fail me. And you do marvelous and wonderful things. And you've saved me. And when we get up in the morning, that, Lord, that you show yourself strong on my behalf, I'm going to look to you every moment. I'm not going to trust in my own doings and trying to find fulfillment in this world, but, Lord, in you alone. So, Father, I thank you for these words of, even though they're words of discouragement from a man, we can be encouraged. That this is written for our admonition. Lord, that he would say that Jesus is my life and my joy and my salvation every day. And not to go after the vain things that will leave us empty. So Lord, I thank you for tonight. I pray you bring comfort to your people, strength, wisdom, direction, provision, everything that we need. Take everyone home safely tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Lord loves you.